This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. Well, a very good morning, ladies and gentlemen. How are we doing this morning? Are we warm or cold campers? Yeah, six and two threes. Um, not to give away too much details, but I, I can overshare sometimes. But I had pajamas, socks, onesie, sleeping bag. That was I was quite toasty last night, but it was quite hard to get out to go to the loo. <laughs> uh, so welcome. If you are not looking for the karma calamity life zone on the book of Ecclesiastes, um, then now is the time to very gracefully pop up and head out to another one. Um, sounds like life in the spirit is happening as we speak over there. <laughs> of course, uh, not to split hairs, you know, a, a, a life sign on scripture is about life in the spirit. So you know, well done. This is all life in the spirit. Um, I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes at the beginning recapping where we got to yesterday in case this is the first one that you maybe you didn't come yesterday. Uh, I wouldn't like you to be scratching your head for the next hour or so. Uh, so I'll just do a very, very brief recap. Uh, but why don't we start by praying and uh, let's make ourselves present to the Lord again. So much going on in a weekend like this. It's good to just to be still for a moment and to be present to him. Living God, once again, we thank you for the gift of scripture. We thank you for a word that bears witness to the living word whose name is Jesus. And we ask that you would take this living word and that you would breathe your breath into us through these words that we might learn what it looks like to trust and follow you, to fear you, to honor you, to live well before you in your world. And we pray that you would increase our appetite for your word, increase our appetite to study and to go deep to contemplate, to wrestle with uh, big questions, and uh, we ask that you would have glory and honor from all that happens in this session today. For your name's sake, Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, amen. Uh, my name's Alan, by the way. If, you've, if you didn't come yesterday, uh, I lead York City Church, and uh, I love the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, a few years ago, I had to write an assignment for university on the book of Ecclesiastes, which became uh, the nuts and bolts of a preaching series, which has now become the nuts and bolts of a life zone series. So things are trickling on and are growing and developing, which is really, really nice. And uh, if nothing else happens this morning, I hope that you will receive a fresh sense of passion and insight and love for scripture. Um, any teaching or preaching that happens in a public sense like this, you should never really go away thinking, oh wow, he or she is an amazing preacher. The goal really is to go away thinking, wow, what an amazing scripture, or what an amazing God. Uh, this is all about having your heart and your head really redone by the living one. Uh, and any reading of scripture where we approach the scriptures knowing in advance what it says will probably get us in a little bit of problems. Uh, time and time and time again, uh, when I come to teaching, preaching, in any context, I'm, I'm looking to bring people into some sense of encounter with God 
in and through the scriptures. Uh, And so please don't have an information head on this morning. Uh, I do want your mind engaged, but what I hope is that your heart will be sufficiently tuned in to be sensitive, discerning of God in his word and how the spirit breathes out of this scripture, this living word that he has given us. Okay, we all good? Excellent. So as a brief recap, uh, yesterday morning we learned that the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the final six verses, starting in chapter 12 and verse 9 and going to the end, they function as uh, what I call a hermeneutical key. It's like an interpretive key for understanding the 11 and a half chapters of Ecclesiastes that went before it. Okay, And in those final six verses, we heard a different voice to the voice of Koaleth, who is the author of the, la- the main bulk of Ecclesiastes. And this voice, the author of the epilogue, comes in to affirm Koaleth, who is quite spiky and quite difficult to understand. The author of the epilogue affirms that Koaleth's words are orthodox, that this is orthodox wisdom, that it's trustworthy, that Koaleth was a sage a public person who is to be listened to and engaged with and who is good for us to pay attention to. We talked a little bit about how wisdom is about cultivating a posture towards life that makes sense of the complexities of life with and before God in the world. Uh, The series is called Karma Calamity because Koaleth, who's the author of the book, the large chunk of the book at least, thinks that things should work on almost a karma-based reality. If you do A, B, C, these predictable things should happen. If you trust God and fear him and worship him, everything should just go really well for you. And he looks at the world and he looks at life in all its forms and richness and he thinks what's going on because I see wicked people who prolong their life and I see righteous people who die early what's going on with that God and so it functions as a kind of karma calamity not karma chameleon Um, I thought it's probably not the right kind of thing for a Christian event Uh, it functions as a karma calamity for Koaleth Things don't work the way they should do when there is a God of divine justice who created and sustains the world. And that's difficult for him. And so he reflects on that thing. We talked about the fear of God as being the Old Testament's equivalent, if you like, to the right human response to God. We touched on Deuteronomy and the covenant. We touched on Abraham, who, uh, as, uh, as a believer, as someone who fears God, is tested and proved as one who fears God. As Job, one who has the, probably the, the most sparkling character description of anybody in the Old Testament, as somebody who is a God-fearer. And so for us as Christians, reading this text that we're going to do today, three texts that speak about fearing God in Ecclesiastes, we are listening in for a sense of how we might have an understanding of faith and trust shaped and molded in our hearts. We're going to get some insights into what it looks like to be a faithful believer as defined in Old Testament terms, if I can speak in that way. So we're going to go after the, this idea of the fear of God in a number of different places. Uh, three key texts, actually, that Koaleth mentions, or Koaleth uses this phrase, the fear of God. And uh, we'll dive in and explore, and, uh, and we'll see what happens as we do. Um, so to begin with, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 11a. 
Um, I'm going to be reading text that's from the NRSV version. The words are going to come up on the screen here. Um, I'm actually not going to, the, the main bulk of what I'll say this morning or in the first few minutes is not based on these first 11 ch- verses. But I want to give a little bit of context for what I am going to say uh, or what Coalette says about fearing God. So Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. So you may know the bird song that was about in every season. Turn, turn, turn. There is a time, you know. Yeah, some people. Those who are old enough to remember the birds are nodding 50 years ago, yes, nodding subtly, not to give away the, you know, I really do, yes, I remember, well, I have the, the, the seven-inch single. Um, so uh, in these verses, Koaleth is reflecting on the range of human activities in history. He's reflecting on human activity under heaven, as he puts it, or under the sun in other translations. Okay? He's thinking about, in Hitchhiker's Guide style, life, the universe, and everything. He's reflecting on human activity and things under heaven. And I wonder if you noticed that this section is marked out by the word everything. It's in verse 1 and verse 11. At verse 1, he writes, for everything, there is a season. And then in verse 11a, uh, he has made everything suitable for its time. And yesterday, I mentioned this slightly geeky term, inclusio, or a frame, or this, this word, everything, bookends this little section. It gives you a clue. There's a literary clue there in this section that everything, everything, It's like a little frame around what Koaleth is talking about. He's reflecting on life under heaven. He's reflecting on all things under heaven. And everything he says is suitable for its time. And there is a reason for everything that happens under heaven. But what does Koaleth mean by this? And the list of things that he says there is a time for, some of them we think, fair enough. Others just seem bizarre like a time to gather stones and a time to throw stones away. I don't know any stone gatherers. Um, Other things are time for hate. That seems a little bit unusual. Maybe it leaves us queasy as 21st century Western liberal democratic context. Oh, my goodness, a time for war and hate. It's all a little bit unusual. Some translations of these verses say that God has made everything beautiful in its time. But that is misleading in at least two ways. 
Firstly, it could lead us to think that Koaleth is speaking about God's creation of the world, that God has created a beautiful creation. But he's not actually speaking about creation in that sense, as what God has made the creation of the world. It could also give us the impression that Koaleth thinks that everything that happens in the world is beautiful. And he most certainly doesn't think that. For everything there is a season. He has made everything suitable for its time. It's not beautiful, but what does it mean to say that he has made everything suitable for its time then? I think that Koalef believes everything is suitable because God has made a world in which all of these activities, all that variety of things in which he says there is a time for these things, even the ones that we might experience negatively from time to time, or maybe always, God has made a world in which all of these things are appropriate in their proper place and time. If you want to understand, oh, hang on, let's just pause for a minute. Here we have our first... We, want, we need some music like the girl from Ipanema. I, Laurie with a U or a W. It's a W. Three to fours. Collect. Anybody? No. Okay. Note this is good news. It doesn't say Arctots 2 this morning. <laughs> Problem solved. I don't know what they've done. They've locked them in a padded cell somewhere. <laughs> Yesterday morning, every single call that was for Arctots too. Um, well, it's time for everything. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm here all morning. Um, everything that Koaleth mentions in that list, even things that we might experience negatively, have their proper place and time in God's ordering of things. Now, that's quite a challenge for us, isn't it? And it's a particular challenge for those of us who are maybe, how can I put this, who are of a particular bent that we think that the goal of Christian life is to smooth away everything difficult. Now that we have come to believe in God or God has taken a hold of us, surely this God exists to remove all the nasty, difficult experiences that we might have in our lives. Well, Koaleth is going to come along with his spiky goad and prod you somewhere and say, don't be thinking like that. There is an appropriateness about everything that happens in God's world. Now, okay, there's all kinds of philosophical things. Let's try and keep with Koaleth for the time being. I want Koaleth to give us a bit of perspective. Here's a negative thing. There's a time to be born and a time to die. What? How is this Christian teaching? How is this something that we can embrace as Christians? Yes, we all think it's being born. Wonderful. Uh, we've had an explosion of how many babies in 50? We have 50 under 12s in York City Church. There's probably 180 people in the church, all told. A time to be born. <laughs> Plenty of that. It's something in York's water. A time to be born and a time to die. We don't like death, seems to us. But for Koaleth, it's part of this ordering of God's world. Let's try and get a bit of perspective with this. Here's some statistics. This year, 
around 130 million people will be born. So that puts even York City Church in the shade. 130 million people. While 55 million people will die this year, estimated, roughly. Now, it's also estimated that there are 7 billion people roaming around on the face of the planet at the moment. 7 billion. And the approximate number of people who have ever lived on the planet is about 107 billion. Now, I went to London the other day and queued for the National History Museum. Natural History Museum. That's with 7 billion people on the planet. It took 40 minutes in the rain. Can you imagine if there was only a time to be born? With 107 billion people pottering around on the planet, what might have happened to our food resources, to pollution, to overcrowding, and such like? Now, okay, I'm not trying to make some ethical comment about death. I'm just trying to point out to you that we think, oh, death, terrible. But from Coalette's perspective, there's a time to be born and a time to die. Both birth and death are appropriate parts of the ordering that God has put into creation somehow, according to Coaleth. And according to the writer of the epilogue in Ecclesiastes, this is orthodox. Perhaps Coaleth can help us overcome the sense that as Christians we are indestructible and bad things shouldn't happen to us. We all have to die. I believe in healing. I have experienced remarkable healings in other people's lives. I've experienced personal healing. I've also experienced people who really believed that they would be healed and who died. Because we all must die. So healing, yes. But the one guarantee is that we all must die. There is a time to be born and a time to die. And that's good orthodox wisdom from an Old Testament perspective. Now, Coaleth has no burning desire to try and explain God away, to try and make some case for how it really is. Well, don't think like that. Maybe there's, there's no apologetic twiddles going on in Coaleth's thinking. He's just trying to figure out how to get by in the world with God, before God, with the things that look absurd with the things that don't seem to fit, with the things that seem to jar from time to time. We don't need to try and make Coaleth culturally relevant. We don't have to try and squeeze him in. We just have to pay attention and listen and allow his perspective, which is Scripture's perspective, to shape our own in some ways. Perhaps this is a helpful corrective for some of us who have just got one issue and we see things very, very black or very, very white. Coaleth is perhaps a little bit more gray than that, okay? We need to pay attention to his perspective. I think what Coaleth wants us to do is understand the frontiers of human knowing, or the frontiers of human knowledge. Coaleth is wise but humble. His wisdom makes him far too savvy to try and penetrate somehow into the divine mystery. Remember, Coaleth is concerned with human activity under 
heaven. He's not trying to get his head into how God allows things or does things or what it looks like for God to be Trinity in eternity past. Um, St. Augustine very famously was asked, what was the Trinity doing before creation? And he said, devising hell for people who ask foolish questions such as that. And I expect if there was a gospel written on St. Augustine, it would have followed after that, though he didn't dare ask him any more questions. Let's read chapter 3, 11, verse, verse 11b. Okay. Koala says, God has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay, you may have a Bible translation that says God has put eternity in their hearts. And that's not a helpful translation because it's smuggling in perspectives that probably Koaleth didn't have any idea about, actually. What Koaleth is speaking here about here is a sense of past and future. Let's talk about what he means. One way of thinking about a sense of past and future uh, in, uh, in human understanding uh, is to suggest that there are just limits to our understanding of God's ways. But we don't get to press into the inner counsels of God so that we can say we have worked him out. You cannot work out the divine. Every true statement that you can make about God, including every true biblical statement, does not exhaust who God is. It refers to God accurately, but not exhaustively. Because God, hallelujah, is bigger than that. He's higher than that. And our human language refers to God analogically. It's not a perfect one-to-one representation because God is, poof, think your highest thought about God. And he transcends it gloriously, infinitely. But in his great mercy, he gives us language that allows us to accurately speak about him. But we can't think that we've got everything about God worked out. There's no way. And Koaleth kind of knows that, I think. He understands that we can't get into the inner counsels of God. We can't understand why God's done that or how God did that or what's going on there. And sometimes attempts to do that, as pious as they might be presented, are, are actually really unbelief. Sometimes our desire to know is driven by an unbelief. We're just not willing to receive certain things from the hands of God, and we need to try and figure out why. And Koalef would say, hmm, I'm not sure that you should do that. When it comes to speech about God, humble confidence is the way. And humble confidence bests harsh certitude every single time. That's one angle. Another angle here is to suggest that we can think about the past as humans because God has given us a sense of history. I quite enjoy history. Um, My wife and I bought Simon Sharma's History of Britain DVDs years ago and sat through those and enjoyed them. Uh, I took Simon Sharma's book on holiday to Wales. I I bought them at the same time as the DVDs and they sat gathering dust on the shelf. Um, So I took one away and I I enjoyed it. I like that. I like church history. I like historical doctrine because guess what? The church didn't appear in the 1970s. The church has been around for a long time. And many Christians have grappled with 
doctrine and scripture and church practice. We're nothing special in that sense. Church has happened for a long time. There's nothing that's dramatically new about New Frontiers, I'm sorry. It's wonderful, but it's happened before. (laughs) And we can think about it, and we can read about it, and we can explore it, and we can think back to things. God has given us a sense of past. We can reflect on the past. But also, God has given human beings a sense of what is to come. We can think about the future. We can think about six months down the line. We can plan for things. We can uh, prepare for things. We can get excited about things. We can think about how we're going to make next year's devoted a much more comfortable experience. Uh, who has a Winnebago that we can smuggle on site? Um, how that person's thermal underwear was a really good idea, actually, as much as I tease them about it and purchase some in advance. We can plan. So a sense of past and future in the minds, God has given that to humanity. They can think about the past. They can think about the future. Yet what you can't do, and here's the kicker, you can't undo the past and you can't change the future. You can't undo what has gone before. And you can't control the outcome of what is to come. You, you can't. You can't. And so often because we're fearful people, fundamentally, we fear the future sometimes, we want to try and manipulate and control the outcome so that we can feel pretty sure about it's going to be okay. Lee touched on that last night, didn't he? Did you notice? Huh. Must be something that the Holy Spirit's doing. That Abraham and fearing God came up last night. I thought, <laughs> I wonder who from my life sign has put two and two together there. I won't do a straw palm. You can't control the outcome and you can't change the past. You can't undo God's works and you can't force God's hand. Now, The author of the epilogue has told us about these wise words that are like a stick with a nail in the end of it that a shepherd uses to jab into the butt of the sheep, to get the sheep moving, to make sure the sheep stays away from danger, to keep the sheep on track. And the author of the epilogue wants us to understand that these words of Coaleth are wise, but they might sting. They might be quite painful to grapple with. They impale our egos, I think. So here we have this text that somehow undoes us and leaves us undone, but kind of hopeful, admonished, but somehow confident. Because we all like to think that we can change our world and we can be everything that we want to be. And Coaleth would say, don't be so silly. You can't change the past and you can't force God's hand for the future. So, what does Coaleth recommend? If that's the case, if the past is past and we can think about it, but we can't do anything about it because it's gone, and if the future is, well, we can maybe plan, but we can't, who can say what will happen? Who can say what will be in six months, six years, 60 years? We, we, who knows? Well, Coleth makes some recommendations for us. And I think this is one of the places in Ecclesiastes where the pious among us don't like it very much. Coaleth uh, is great at undermining your religiosity. Really, really good. I think that's why I like Ecclesiastes so much, because piety is overrated. Not some kinds of piety. 
You know, sometimes the kind of religious piety is like, Coleth would be like, with his goad. The pious don't like what Coleth says as a recommendation because it sounds like it's dangerously radical. But remember, the author of the epilogue has told us that this is orthodox, and so we need to pay attention. The irreligious among us, the kind of, you know, the young, cool person, like, who is like, yeah, just be real, man. Like, just be real, be true to yourself, man, whatever, who's really saying, don't challenge me about anything in my life at all because I'm an autonomous creature. The, the, uh, the irreligious like that love Coalette's recommendations because it sounds edgy and dangerous and cool, but they often forget the part that God plays in Coalette's thought here. So what Coalette recommends, we're going to see it in a minute, I promise this is just a little build-up. What Coalette recommends, the pious ugh, feel nervous about it, the irreligious think it's great, and both need to remember that God plays a part in this. That God is in this. God is involved, so pay attention, listen up. Here it is, having built it all up. Coalette's recommendation is, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. Wow. If you are a pious religious person at the moment, you might be going, but, 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 but. If you work a really terrible job, you might be going, but, 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 but. Or maybe you're just, meh, I'm ambivalent about it. What's going on here? Whether you see this from the perspective of someone who's irreligious, and it's all cool, and I don't like the idea of anyone imposing things on me, or from the sense of being pious, and everything has to be neat and tidy and boxed up and careful, and nothing's, nothing kind of a little bit dodgy sounding. Uh, the recommendation to enjoy life comes in the context of God's control over everything that happens. And it comes in the context of life as a gift from God to be received something, this whole way of life, everything that happens under heaven, you exist in it as another created thing. You are just one more created thing in a universe of created things distinct from the only non-created thing, which is God. Everything else in, in, that exists is created. God alone is uncreated. There are two categories of being, the uncreated and the created. Which type do you belong to? Created. That's correct. I'm sorry if you were sitting there thinking, oh, I'm the ancient of days. You might be elderly, <laughs> but you're not the ancient of days. Coaleth sees everything as a gift. This is God's gift to people. This world with all its contingencies and all the things that happen in it, all the things that somehow feel a bit out of place to us, they belong in this world that God has made. Remember, we said at the beginning, Coaleth believes in divine justice. He believes in a creator God who's transcendent and good. And that means that some things are difficult for him, but he sees life as fundamentally, this is a gift. This is something to be received, not grasped or seized hold of or tried to be pushed and manipulated. The idea is not that you try and push and force your way in life. Coalette's wisdom suggests that you receive, that you receive. And even if that means some hard stuff along the way, guess what? 
we receive the good and the bad from his hand. Because otherwise, what, have you, what kind of God do we have? Is he the sovereign, uncreated one? Or is he just somehow hamstrung by some difficult stuff that we experience in our lives? Coalette's view of God is that he is transcendent and glorious and other. And that forms the perspective for him of everything that happens under heaven. It's under heaven. It's below him. This is a long way away, by the way, from some kind of apathetic fatalism that never sees any point in doing anything because you can't be completely certain of the outcome. I'm sure you know people who live like that. Maybe you even yourself. Maybe you're one of those paralyzed men that was prophesied about the other day. You just can't be certain and you just don't bother. Well, read Coaleth and get over yourself. Just do something. Get a hobby. <laughs> like try something radical. Like risk getting it wrong. Oh my life. What? But it's not hedonism either. It's not I will do whatever you like and you can't stop me. It's neither of those things. This is a wise perspective to take on life under heaven. To understand that you can't change the past, you can't control the outcome of the future, you can't go through life trying to micromanage every area of your life to kind of weed out every mistake and every failure and every pain ahead of time. You can't be paralyzed by everything. You just got to get on. Now, here's some pastoral advice for you. I I am, believe it or not, I am a pastor. (laughs) I sort of moonlight and some other things at time to time. But... Here's some pastoral words from from Coaleth based based on this. Find something that you love to do and do it, no matter what the outcome. I think people who take on board Coaleth's wisdom find some stuff that they enjoy, whether gardening or crocheting or playing golf or whatever else it might be, or art or or just, I don't know, bird watching. Something like, it could just be simple and innocuous or something highbrow and out there, or, or, or a job or something. Do something that you actually like to do and throw yourself into it because that's a good way to live in the good world that God has given as a gift to his creatures. Enjoy, celebrate, enjoy your food. Don't see things as just utilitarian. They are just there and it's just a bummer. There's stuff everywhere, isn't there? There's all this matter coming over here and getting in the way and mucking things up and getting in the way of me and my perfect soul and its relationship with God. It's nonsense. You are an embodied person. A thing in God's created world. And he's made you for joy. Now, St. Augustine would say, and we're kind of oh, going off piste again. Um, St. Augustine would say that you've got to make sure that your joys point you to God. They're not just, it's not just, well, I'm going to get on with it because there's no point in thinking about God. No, things that you love and enjoy are, are to direct your heart towards God. They're supposed to be things that they're, they're temporary, they're passing, but still they're gifts. And so embrace and enjoy and love. Perhaps you just feel stuck in a job that you just hate. Why do you stay? 
I mean, I know the situations. You maybe need to hear the permission this morning from God that it's okay to make a change. If you hate it, well, why do you do it? Why toil away hating what you do? Kawaleth would say, you should enjoy what you do. Don't waste your time on stuff that you hate. Maybe make a change. Maybe try and find something different. I don't know. So Kawaleth's recommendation then, in the sense of everything that God does, everything that God has given to the children of men under heaven to do, he recommends that we just love living him, uh, that we don't get kind of pious or, or, head, or just kind of hedonistic, um, that, that we have this perspective of who we are as created things, of life as a gift from him, that we understand this, that we can't control outcomes, we can't change the past, and so we live fully pouring out our lives now in the present as best we can, not hindered or paralyzed by questions and trying to get everything nailed down, okay? Now, okay, I've got to move on because the off-piste will kill me in the end. Um, Theology for Disenchanted Age. Um, I'm tipping my hat to a a writer called Charles Taylor here, uh, who has written a massive book called A Secular Age. And he's written about the way that from the 1500s to the present day, there has been this disenchantment where uh, through various means, people kicked out ghosts and magic and enchanted stuff and things that seemed a little bit kind of outside of the ordinary. Um, And now there's no enchantment anymore. There's no sense of mystery or anything in the world. And in fact, we have to use things like iPads and phones and social media to kind of re-enchant the world somehow. Um, and Coaleth is a, is a theologian for a disenchanted age. And here's why. Let's read what he says in, the, in verse 14 of chapter 3. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe or that all should fear before him. So here we touch down again on this fearing God piece. And maybe we can sum up all of this stuff in chapter 3 by saying that God has created a system of times and events that human wisdom alone cannot penetrate to the depths of. A system that is under God's governance and control. And if a man or a woman has the wisdom to recognize that, they will stand in awe of God. They will fear God. And in doing that, they will begin to embody the same humble wisdom of the psalmist, where where it says, my times are in your hands, or teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And among other things then, fearing God will mean receiving life and rejoicing in life as we have it, as a good gift from God. It will involve accepting one's own limitations from the perspective that there is a massive gulf between me and God. Koaleth has this healthy sense of transcendence. And if God's ways elude our human understanding, then how much more does God himself God cannot be collapsed into our experience. And that's a healthy admonishment sometimes for charismatic Christians. You cannot reduce God to experience. You cannot. But Koaleth still remains confident that God can be known, that God can be loved, that God can be trusted, 
and that God should be feared. And that a wise life takes those things into account and celebrates and rejoices and presses forwards. Could I just take a break for a moment to have a drink? Thank you. Thank you, the one person who said yes. This is the home crowd over here. I have home support. They've heard it all before. I, they're, they're like a little prompt, actually. And the moment where I get stuck, I kind of, what is it? I could have had someone holding my notes for me yesterday. Okay. Let's move on to another passage in Ecclesiastes. This is chapter 5. Um, some of you will be familiar with this song. Uh, this song? Ha! Giving away what's coming next. We'll be familiar with this passage of scripture. Um, some of you will have read it. Others of you will have sung a song that comes very, very, very close to doing what the song says you shouldn't do, which is to use many words when you're approaching God. I think it's almost ironic, which is wonderful. Um, I'm going to talk about chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes under the heading of... I just have to find some way of kind of arranging it. So we're going to talk about... Um, prayers, praises, and promises in Ecclesiastes 5. Okay, are you ready? <laughs> are you ready? Yeah, okay, good. Thank you very much. Now, it's always a little bit risky to generalize when we're speaking about the Old Testament because it covers a, a wide range of time and a, a diverse range of voices and perspectives, whether theological social, religious, whatever else. Um, however, please humor me here. It's probably generally true to say that worship in the Old Testament involved largely the offering of sacrifices to God, okay? particularly what's called cultic worship, not to be confused with cults. It just means the particular setup of a temple and priests and animal sacrifices and things in Israel's life. That is generally the kind of worship, the corporate worship life of Israel. And so you, uh, you would bring your offering or your sacrifice to the sacred place and you would present it to a priest and the priest would offer the sacrifice to God and you receive the blessing, etc., etc., in worship and, and all, all is well and good. But look out. Because here comes Koaleth again, and he's sharpening up the spiky end of his goad. We have this kind of text about worship, but be careful. What will Koaleth say? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools, for they do not know how to keep from doing evil. I love this verse. Uh, this is such a brilliant verse. Uh, this is not one that worship leaders generally tend to use on Sunday morning when we're about to begin the meeting. That nice, gentle, pastoral gathering word, don't be offering the sacrifice of fools. Um, it's not going to go down very well, is it? Be careful how you approach God in worship. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Listening implies obedience to the voice of God. And from God's perspective, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. They do not know that they are doing evil. You know, there are ways of making legitimate spiritual practices stink to God. There are. There are ways of doing that. Read some of the prophets. 
What do you mean by this trampling of my courts? I have not required this from you. Very interesting. Now, in my head, and that's a very dangerous place to open up. <laughs> You're laughing. That's so rude. Um, in my head, she laughs straight away. Brilliant. You're sacked. No, yeah. They're trying to move to Sweden anyway. It's going to be someone else's problem soon. Okay, in my head, I have this vision of, uh, when I think about this verse, I kind of imagine, I kind of creatively put myself in this place, and I imagine an earnest worshipper turning up with his sacrifice, maybe under his arm or in a kind of gunny sack over his kind of shoulder, speaking to the priest and to God in an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical theatre kind of voice. It's like, you know, oh my father, I have travelled many moons through darkened roads, fighting off bells to arrive at your holy dwelling place, and here I am, my Lord, to offer my sacrifice. It's all... Ah... Eeps, nail, threes or fours, collect. So we have this kind of earnest worshipper rolling up in the temple. But there's a problem. There's a problem with the earnest worshipper and the routine. Because the earnest worshipper thing is a front for a life of oppression and meanness and idolatry. And then in glides Kowaleth with his goad. And it all gets a bit crazy. And I kind of like to imagine Kowaleth by, played by Samuel L. Jackson in this movie or something. <laughs> I mean, it'd be great, wouldn't it? If you, ever, if you want to have an amusing little conversation ever, you can either do it with your elders or just when they're not around. Um, perhaps one for late night tonight. Um, sit around and talk about the best, who would be your best, your number one, your top ten movie star elders. Like, who would you have as a, who's a movie star as an elder? I mean, Samuel L. Jackson's in there for me. Robert De Niro. He's there. He's got to be there. I mean, the, well, you can work it out. Knock yourselves down. You got that one for free. <laughs> so let's try and bring this uncomfortable text home to roost. If you think that the quality of your external worship performance in a church setting is going to somehow excuse disobedience in the rest of your life, then you're deluded and you are offering the sacrifice of fools. Ouch. Yeah, I know I just stabbed you. But you need to hear it. Turning up on Sunday and making a big show of that doesn't cover the fact that in here there's all kinds of junk and rubbish. God sees. He knows. And that's a way that we make legitimate spiritual practices actually stink somehow. By using them as a cover-up by using them as some kind of super spiritual blanket that we throw over disobedience in our lives, and like it doesn't really matter. Because worship is actually about obedience and the whole of your life. And yes, that's wonderful. Well, what's that song that came out of New Day? I've heard it, and it just, it's the one that doesn't come out of your head the whole time. 
um, the one about being good. I won't sing it because you'll just have it in your head all day too. It, look, wonderful. But God's looking for more than just performance. He's looking for more than just a crisis moment on a Sunday. He's looking for a consistency of life and walk and heart and obedience. And he sees it. He sees because God is in heaven and you are on earth. He sees. He has a perspective. Okay? You can't wriggle out of having to obey God. You you can't. You can't wriggle out of big issues, things that you're avoiding. You have to actually be honest and and realistic about those kinds of things. One of the, uh, we set up our our meeting on a Sunday in in the round. Um, It's getting more of a challenge as as more people come and join the church because 150 people and it's like, you know, in the round is quite a challenge in some ways. But the reason that we do that is because it it gets away from the kind of me and God thing and, you know, like we're all sitting here in banks of rows of seats and all you can see is the head, of the, the back of the head of the person in front of you and the person like whoever's speaking or the worship leader or whatever in, in a church setting. And it's quite easy to just slip under the radar and assume that everything's cool because I turn up, I have my personal download of God or whatever we want to say and I go home. But when you are looking across the room and we have the Lord's table in the middle right, every week, When you're looking across the room at the person that you've been slagging off, bless her, during the week, and you're looking at her in the eye across the room, and you are singing, I love you, Lord. Oh, man, I've got to get this right. It's a lot harder to make excuses. It's a lot harder to perform your way out of the actual hard work of worshipful obedience in relationship with other people. Ha! Right? Now, I'm not saying that you will need to go and rearrange your Sunday mornings, although it would be good. Um, but what I am saying is that we have to take real care that we don't think because stuff seems to be working on that sort of basis, I perform well, I enjoy worship, that God turns a blind eye to bigger issues in our lives that maybe we're trying to hide, either from other people or from him. Okay? He sees and he knows And so this text is uncomfortable for that very reason. Next up. Never be rash with your mouth, Coleth goes on. Nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For dreams come with many cares and a fool's voice with many words. Ah, The irony is not lost on me. (laughs) Here we are at the back end of a second 75-minute live zone of talking. (laughs) There's been a lot of words. An old mate of mine, uh, Mancunian, not that that really has anything to do with it, but uh, he used to say, my wife asks me a question, answers it for me, and then tells me I'm wrong. I can't tell who's laughing the more now, whether it's the men or the women. He said, she does. She says, are you out tonight? You are, aren't you? Well, you're not. You're staying put. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, And amen. (laughs) Fifteen years into marriage, yes. Um, I wonder whether we have a tendency to do that, or at least something like that with God. I wonder whether we have a tendency to seek God 
with a preconceived idea of what we'd like the answer to be. And when we discern that maybe God's saying no, because, you know, no is a legitimate answer to prayer as much as yes. You do realize that, don't you? God's not answering my prayers. Yes, he is. He's saying no. <laughs> if, if, if all I ever said to my six-year-old son was yes, it would be chaos. It's chaos when I say no as well. Do we use words to try and co-opt God? Do we use prayer as a means to try and manipulate God? Do we try and just use language cleverly and cunningly to get things to work out well somehow? Coleth would say, be careful. Don't be rash with your mouth. Coleth reminds us again then of God's exalted position. God is in heaven. He has a perspective that you just don't get to see. So be real careful about the way that you use words. Words can be used rashly or unthinkingly, and that's inappropriate when we are dealing with God. And so Coleth says, let your words be few. Now, this brings us into the vicinity of Jesus in the Gospels. If you're thinking, oh, yes, but Jesus is nicer than this. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the Gentiles who heap up lots of words thinking that they're heard because of their many words. No, when you pray, say, Father. And in actual fact, those of us who have got a slightly uh, funny reaction against liturgy, um, Jesus' actual words are, when you say, when you pray, say this, and it means repeat. So he's actually giving us a prayer, not that we use as a template. We're supposed to say the Lord's Prayer as is, verbatim. Okay? At least in Matthew's Gospel, for sure, it says that. Okay? Here's some few words that you can use. Eugene Peterson, who is one of my favorite authors, and uh, I'll give a rush on the bookshop. His book, When Kingfishers Catch Fire, his latest one, is $5.99 in the bookshop. It's about 300 pages, big paperback. Get it! going to say, go now! Run! There's, there's only a few left. $5.99, that's a great deal. Um, Eugene Peterson is very good on this kind of stuff. Uh, his little book that touches on Ecclesiastes as well is wonderful. Uh, and, and Eugene Peterson says, you know... Part of the thing is that sometimes when we pray, it's just an exercise of the religious ego. We're just letting the religious ego kind of babble and overflow. And, you know, it's kind of, we want to kind of put on a show somehow. We pray. I mean, I'm guilty of this. I mean, I'm an elder in praying and praying long prayers. And and sometimes you just don't need to do all that sometimes. Just let your words be few, Kaoleth says. But what do you think that God doesn't know about it if you don't tell him in an essay? Well, God's unaware. There are Christian traditions of silent contemplation that pay more attention to being silent and still before God and listening and paying attention to God. More, more attention to that than telling him stuff. And I think that perhaps, perhaps, I don't know, maybe I'm reading into Kaleth here. Maybe just hear it as that. Perhaps prayer is not so much about getting a job done as it is about God doing a job on you and I. Perhaps prayer is less about getting God to change the world, because God's been doing a pretty good job on the world for as long as creation, as far as I can see. 
And perhaps prayer is a lot more than we give credit for about our hearts and lives changing before God, right? Maybe prayer is actually shaping you rather than trying to get stuff done. I think it is for getting stuff done, don't get me wrong, but perhaps we need to kind of pull back a bit and say, wow, how does prayer shape me as a person? Interesting. Anyway, um, there is a film, which you may have seen, uh, called The Stepford Wives. Um, that's, the most, that's a modern version. I think it's one of those remake things. And in The Stepford Wives, the basic premise is that a bunch of guys in a neighborhood create robotic wives that basically say yes to everything. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. And, and some of us in reality might prefer a God like that. Some of us might actually prefer to have a God that, who never contradicts you, who never says no, actually, who never says something to you that you don't like to hear, like Ecclesiastes, but just tells you nice stuff. It just tells you, oh, you're lovely. I like you. I want to cuddle you. And God loves you. I'm not saying that God doesn't love you. Of course not. But perhaps... Perhaps we have manufactured a God who just does what we want. And Carleth would suggest to us that God doesn't play games with us and God can contradict us. And the reality is you can't have a relationship with a God who only does what you want him to do. That's not a relationship. That's a robot. That's artificial intelligence. You bang in the numbers, you know, computer says yes or computer says no. Or you put in the coins and pull the handle, down come the goodies or whatever else. That's not a relationship. Coaleth brings us into an uncomfortable, awestruck sense of God's greatness. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let your words be few. Don't be rash with what you say. And it means that we relate to God. But we don't relate to God in such a way that he's just on a par with us, a buddy who will just do what we want when we want it. That's not God. If we're going to pray, if we're going to worship, if we're going to approach God, then we're going to have to surrender control. And perhaps that's why a lot of people don't like to pray. Because it means surrendering control. It means giving yourself over to another. It means not being able to control the outcome. Here's one outcome that you could control. If the name of your child or the registration of your car is... A... Is that VV? A civil. (laughs) Five to sevens? Nope. Okay. Okay. Um, how are we doing for time? Oh, gee whiz. Okay. Uh, I said prayers, praises, cover praises. Let's talk about promises for a moment. When you make a vow to God, do not delay fulfilling it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill what you vow. It's hard not to see Mr. T from the A-team when you talk about fool. Um, <laughs> oh, I just ruined it, haven't I? <laughs> I have one ski was off piste. uh, Fulfill what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say to the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your words and destroy the work of your hands? Um, 
So a vow is like an oath, like a, a, a voluntary promise. It's something that you, you don't have to do, but you, you offer something. You make a promise about something. You plan something. You decide, for example, I don't know, uh, I'm going to fast and pray every Monday in 2019, or I'm going to abstain from EastEnders for this term, or, uh, or I'm not going to drink alcohol on a Saturday night so that I'm fresh and ready on Sundays. Um, something like that. Something that you don't have to do. There's no imposition upon you. But nevertheless, God takes it seriously. God takes it seriously. When you say, God, I've got to fast every Monday, God actually owns that. He goes, yeah, okay, all right, come on then, go for it. Excellent, wonderful. And then God takes it seriously when you don't. It's not like God decides that he doesn't like you anymore. But God is looking for obedience and for our words and our actions to have some congruence to them. He's looking for the stuff that we say, even the voluntary stuff. Do you, are you going to make good on that? And it's like, I love the little thing. I love the way the guys do it here. You know, if you put an IOU in the devoted offering, we'll only write to you once. And then we will put a black mark next to you on the registration system. <laughs> and make sure that you are pitched next to the bogs every single time. Or near the front gate. I think someone from City Church hasn't delivered on it anyway. <laughs> very, very gracious. <laughs> God takes us seriously on things. I'm just going to sum this up because I want to get onto the next bit quickly. The reason God takes us seriously on things is that I mean, sometimes our vows are good, like we can say, I'm going to fast and pray. Sometimes vows and promises are kind of just the flapping of your gob about what you're going to do. You're excited about something. And so you flap your mouth out about what you're going to do next year or in six weeks' time. And Koala says, be careful. Be careful what you say you're going to do. Because you don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. And the book of James touches on this exact same thing. Don't make wild promises about we're going to go to this city and we're going to go here and we're going to do that. I think we have to be really careful as Christians about making large-scale promises about what we're going to do because we just don't know. We just don't know. You can never tell. Um, I found out recently that a dear friend of mine was... uh, I mean, it's tragic. He, he was, uh, they were going to go church planting. It was all set. They'd sold the house. They were about to move. And he was in a supermarket. And a, a desk in a box fell off a shelf and hit him on the head and knocked him out cold. And for a year, he experienced the symptoms of kind of not like a, not post-traumatic stress, like uh, concussion and memory loss, and it changed his character. And now his marriage is over, and his his life has changed, and he's clinging on to God. But no one saw that coming. We're planting a church over here. Are you? Be careful. You don't know what's coming. Now, this, I don't want this to be a faith killer, but I want it to be actually a, hey, we put, we're confident in God. We can't control the outcome. We must be careful that we don't try and force the outcome because we're not God. And whether it be little things about our lives or big things like that, we just must take care that we recognize the otherness of God and our own smallness and contingency. Um, I want to give you some time to to speak.
Um, why don't you take two minutes and chat to the person next to you, and just maybe two, three minutes, we'll see. Um, and I'll just use, use it as some download time. Um, I'm sorry I should have done this earlier on after the first chunk of text. I just want you to talk. What's really stinging? Where is the goad actually really ouchy at the moment? What do you desperately disagree with? What's, what's a real issue here? Um, and before you do, P. Domini. Uh, three to fours, anybody? Not P. Diddy. <laughs> P. Domini. Okay? Two, three minutes. Pairs, threes. If there's a group of you from a church, go for it. Um, if you're just here by yourself, find someone, bundle in with them. Just reflect, talk, and then I'm just going to get you to shout back some comments and feedback, some questions, which I may or may not defer to later. But let's do some downloading time, okay? Okay, um, good that there's a hubbub of conversation. That's decent. I hope that it's been useful to actually take a few minutes. I'm, I'm sorry. I get excited about this kind of stuff, and I just go. Um, and um, I managed to avoid the off-piste bits more or less today, which is good news, probably. Um, what I might do is there's one more chunk of, one more text that I wanted to deal with that's, that's great. I might just tack that on at the beginning tomorrow morning so that we don't go way over time, because it probably would, let's be honest. <laughs> I would go way, I'd go way over time. Like that, yeah. um, so, um, so we'll just, I'll just give you some space to kind of fire out questions, comments, anything. Um, and, and then we'll call it quits for this morning and pick up in Ecclesiastes 7 tomorrow. Um, is that okay? Yeah. You're right, happy? So over to you. Good. Thank you. That's, that's resounding. That was highly positive. Good. Um, so, does anybody want to, any, any questions first? I know this is a weird setting for, ah, thank you. That's brilliant. That's what giving sweets out before it starts is all about. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope you don't mind this one. Um, but uh, where it's, uh, you were saying, it's nothing better for men to be happy and to enjoy themselves. Um, how would you square that with um, that uh, anyone who wants to come after me must uh, deny themselves and take up their cross. Excellent. So the question was, uh, okay, being happy and enjoying yourself, uh, how do you square that with uh, taking up your cross and following Jesus? It's a brilliant question. And I'm, uh, what I'm going to do is sort of bring the idea of the fear of God together again as about trust and obedience and faith, that when the Old Testament speaks about fearing God, that's like an equivalent version of trust and faith in the New Testament. And so really and truly, there's, I mean, what, what Jesus means by take up your cross and follow you means, follow me means to kind of embrace this way of living that is, uh, that is a kind of a cruciform way. Okay, it's a way and it, that probably embraces, I think, a lot of what Coalet says, because there is a way that is cruciform to say, I can't control any outcomes. I have to obey. I have to just surrender myself. Um, Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton and a party animal. Um, and Jesus walked the way of the cross. Um, I think that it's probably not necessarily 
one is that direction and the other is that direction. But the way of the disciple and following and taking up your cross is a posture towards following Jesus. Um, but within that, there is space for enjoyment and celebration and life because Jesus did. Um, in actual fact, we'll touch on this tomorrow, but for the New Testament, Jesus or Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. And so if we want to read scripture, an Old Testament wisdom scripture, we have to see it as somehow pointing towards or reading it in the light of Christ as the wisdom of God. So I don't think that they're separate. I don't think they need to be played off one against the other. I think that they both belong to a posture towards God and life in the world that is obedience and fearing him and faithfulness and all the rest of it, probably. Is that okay? Any other cues? Ah, hello. How would you, how would you how do you think Coelho would square off his message to the prosperity gospel uh, buy a bigger goad um, <laughs> I think maybe if we can use George W. Bush's he'd go nuclear um, <laughs> how would he square off so how would he so how would he approach the what would he say to the prosperity gospel do you mean? Yeah. Well, I think he would probably see the prosperity gospel as being co-opting God uh, and using language to co-opt God and to control God and to manipulate situations, because that's what I think the prosperity gospel preachers do. They say, if you do this, then that will happen. Send in your handkerchief, <laughs> Creflo a dollar, we'll pray over it and send it back, and then you'll find a Mercedes on your drive or <laughs> something. And I'm sorry, that's a terrible reduction and making an absurdity of it. But I think that he would, he would see it as manipulative language and somehow trying to co-opt who God is in order to gain and get something out of it. It's very different to the kind of letting your words be few, uh, receiving life as gifts as it comes, um, like living with what you have in the present and fearing God in that. Um, I think that would probably be how he would, how he would tackle the prosperity gospel. Um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because it was probably it's an anachronism for Coaleth. Would he know? Like, I don't know. But I think that's how I might use Coaleth to perhaps address some of the prosperity freighted things maybe um like that it's that sort of my your best life now stuff um sort of almost denies any kind of spikiness about life and tries to iron out the, the rough bits and i think well that's quite cruel actually because you're sort of setting up a setting up a way of life for people that most everybody well, most people find is just doesn't work it doesn't life doesn't work like that so yeah we can we can talk about that a bit more later if that's if you want that's yeah anyone else Hey, hello. Let me come around here. They're probably going to delete all this bit off the CD, but I, it's, it just helps that you can, everyone here. Um, is this poetry? Does the formatting suggest anything? Like from chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, it looks like it's formatted like poetry, and then it goes to just plain text after that. Does that signify anything? Yeah, good question. Uh, signifies editing work. Um, it signifies that, uh, yeah, because there, there are more poetic pieces and there are sort of prose pieces in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I didn't say in the first session that there are 
There are new, some people, well, you would maybe are not surprised to hear that in biblical studies, um, there's all kinds of debate and conversation over how many different voices we might get to hear in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, for the most part, I think it's better to hear two voices. Coalette's voice, which is from chapter 1, verse 2, to the end of chapter 12 nearly, and then this frame editor who kind of tops and tails the book for us. I think that there are probably... You know, if Coleth wrote down wise words, why wouldn't he write down poetry as well? Um, I think that it's maybe suggestive. Sometimes in poetry, in uh, Hebrew poetry, there are sort of ways of finding sort of the, the core of the text by looking at the meter or what's the central idea in it and things like that. Um, tackling English translations of Hebrew text is tricky because there's a lot more interpretive freedom with Hebrew. It's not quite as cut and dried as New Testament Greek. Um, and so perhaps interpreters of you know, Bible translators have put some text in a kind of a, a poetry-like format on the page because they see it as being like a poem because of meter and alliteration and things like that. Um, it's difficult to kind of communicate that from one ancient language into a modern language. Um, so perhaps, yes, but, uh, but I don't think there's anything massively significant about a poetry format for chapter five and the, the verses we were looking at. Hey. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm just reflecting on how difficult the reality of this is. So when life brings tragedy or something you don't understand, so I'm thinking about the example of your friend, how, how do you live out enjoying life when you've genuinely had a passion to plant a church and your life has turned around and you're, how do you, as an individual or as a friend, help someone live what coalesce, what God would want us to live, which is enjoying life in spite of that experience? That's a great question. That's, that's the $64 million question, isn't it? Um, that's what we would have got to <laughs> at the end of chapter 7. Um, Here's the short answer. Fear God and keep his commandments. Okay? This is the whole duty of everyone. So faced with the, the contingencies of existence in, the, in, the, in life under heaven, with the, the unpredictability of life in the world, with uh, righteous people who live short lives and suffer, and wicked people who seem to go on forever, um, like with all the stuff that happens and all the things that we can't control or explain or change, Coalette's wisdom, the, the point is fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. Obey him, love him, trust him. You cannot control what happens, but love him and trust him. You know, that takes out feelings. Oh, I really feel sometimes, don't we? I don't feel. How, how often do you, people say, oh, I feel like God is saying? And I'm like, well, what about I think that God is saying? Is it, why do we say I feel all the time? But sometimes it's just about saying, do you know what? Life has gone to the dogs, but I fear God and I keep his commandments. That's all I can do. Sometimes that's all you can do. And guys, if God is not enough for us, if God and as God, if he alone is not enough for us, then we may struggle with that. 
And if somehow we've lost sight of future glory, where all our longings and achings will be satisfied, where we will have an unclouded, undimmed, perfect vision of him, and we will enjoy him for eternity in a new heavens and a new earth, if that slips from view... And the whole of Christian life gets sucked into the present about me and an experience now, then we will really, really struggle when stuff goes wrong. God is our portion. Psalm 73, I think, or maybe 16. I got confused about this the other day. Whom have I in heaven but you, says the psalmist? And earth has nothing I desire beside thee. Fear God and keep his commandments. He is your only firm foundation. If God is only worth fearing and obeying because he does what you want him to do, then something has gone wrong somewhere. If God is only worthy of your worship when the sun is shining, then something's gone wrong somewhere. My dear friend has just clung to God with his fingernails But God clings to him tighter than that. Fear God and keep his commandments. In that is the whole end of everybody. And probably in that is the whole end of the (laughs) How seamless was that? Wow, it's like I've done it before. (laughs) Okay, okay. Well, quick contingency before you all all leg it, okay? This This is one voice. In scripture, okay? Koalath is one wisdom voice, along with Job, along with Proverbs. There is also Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy. There is also the prophets, which the Hebrew Bible regards as Joshua, all the way through to the end of our prophets. Okay? These are all voices that speak, and they all have different emphases. This is not the way. This is not all you should think about everything about life. This is Ecclesiastes and Koaleth, and this is a particular thematic focus. I don't want you to go away and think, oh, but it... But I, it's, it's not that, and it's not that. Well, no, it's not. It's, it's this. It's one voice, right? Don't mistake what I'm saying or hear what I'm not saying. This is dealing with Ecclesiastes. If you feel stung and pricked, that's because Coalette's goad is getting to you. And that's decent. But you can enjoy everything else too. So enjoy your day. See you later. See you tomorrow.